What is going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Physique Archive. I am your host, Kate and Michelle. Shameless plug to my Instagram. Go ahead and follow me there. And any guests that you guys would like to see, please go ahead, comment, shoot me a DM. I'll invite anybody um, on here to talk all things physique related. So uh, today's episode, I'm very excited to have one of my mentors through my graduate program, Dr. Bill Campbell. If you guys have followed physique science at all, then you know that Dr. Campbell is at the forefront of, of conducting studies that are more oriented to bodybuilders and physique athletes. So I'm not going to do too long of an intro. We have a phenomenal conversation about research studies that he's done studies that he's designing we even talked a little bit about uh, what i would suggest for a future study coming up so all really exciting things and of course practical application and takeaways as far as evidence and how to apply it to the physique athlete so very exciting stuff i'll catch you guys inside um, everybody, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bill Campbell from USF. He was a phenomenal uh, professor and mentor for me during my time there. So I'm very excited to have him on here and kind of discuss his research, what it is that makes him different, what makes his lab different. Um, I've spoken a lot about my experience there, but um, there is something really cool that he is doing that separates him from the rest. So uh, please welcome Dr. Bill Campbell. Campbell, please introduce yourself. All right. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to be on your podcast. And as Kate said, I'm a professor at the University of South Florida. I direct the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory. And I've been here for 13 years and absolutely love my job, love the area, and am pretty much always knee-deep in research. And the, the, the research that we do, it focuses on physique enhancement. And I like to describe that by saying that the research that we do helps people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that you look at, especially when it comes to application to bodybuilding, specifically while you do look at bodybuilders, such as myself when I was there, a lot of our test subjects are mostly resistance trained um, individuals and specifically your lab tends to look more at females. Yes, and that's a, that's a, it's an important point. We study bodybuilders because I believe they're the experts in fat loss and, and muscle gain for that matter. So I learn from them. I, I like to learn what works for them. And then essentially we dial it back a notch or two because not everybody is, is as driven as a bodybuilder, but they would like the same physique a lot of times. So we essentially say, what are the important things that bodybuilders are doing? How can we make that maintainable? Because as, as you know, competitors being on stage, that condition, it's not, it's, it's not maintainable. So we study bodybuilders, learn from them, and then we try to apply it to, I won't even say the masses because the, the people that are interested in this stuff, they're, they're not normal people. They're recreational bodybuilders, they're fitness enthusiasts. They're, again, they're people that want to look like a bodybuilder, but maybe not step on the actual competitive stage. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to ask you, what is it that really got you interested in this specific niche of research? Uh, uh, bodybuilding. <laughs> so when I was, how old was I? 24? Yeah, I think 24 years old, I did my first bodybuilding show. And I loved the, the lifestyle. I loved the training. Um, and like you, I, I had a an athletic background. I played collegiate basketball at the division three level. And 
I, I, one thing I didn't care about team sports was the, the team aspect. <laughs> um, I, I believed in, and I, I firmly believe I worked harder than most of my teammates. Now I was not as talented. I didn't start, I didn't even play much, but I always looked at my teammates who were, who were more talented than me and they just wouldn't practice as much like in the off season or even in practice. And it, it bothered me. So that's right at the end of my college career is when I first started seriously lifting weights. And then again, I competed a few years later. So just the, as, the, the individual aspect of the sport, I, I really, you know, I just, I love being in the gym Friday night when nobody else was there at like eight o'clock. I, I just, I love that. And I also really like the sports nutrition aspect. That's probably what my favorite part was. Like I love supplements and I'm old enough to remember when creatine was very first introduced into this country as a dietary supplement. So we're talking the late 1990s when it was commercially available. So the sports nutrition, love that, loved lifting weights, the bodybuilding, trying to lose fat, I experimented with ketogenic diets at the time. So the, the draw for me in this profession and as a researcher was bodybuilding, everything about bodybuilding. I, I, mean, I don't, I don't take drugs now, but I even like the steroid culture at that time. I read books on that. So even that aspect of, of the sport was interesting to me. So pretty much everything about it. And so when you first started doing your research, I think a lot of it uh, was on supplementation. You used to do a lot of supplement research um, and you've kind of transitioned away from that. I think at this point um, to more uh, impacts on physiology and physique stuff, um, as far as what gets controlled in your lab. So when you first started, um, what were some of the main, um, research studies that you had done? And then at what point did you transition over into more physique oriented science? Yeah, that's a very good memory. So some of my earliest studies here were on energy drinks and exercise performance, soy protein and the amino acid response. We did several thermogenic supplements where we looked at increases in metabolic rate. Um, I also looked at different types of whey protein. And the, the real reason, again, I like sports nutrition, but there's, as, as a professor, you kind of have to bring in money, funding to keep your lab operational. And you can do that through two general ways, through federal funding, like NIH funding, which I, which I don't engage in that that's, I chose to go for industry funding, which was the sports nutrition industry. So I, I was able to get some funding in that industry, which built my lab to where it is now. Now, you know, I was able to pay for equipment supplies and sometimes pay my research assistants, pay the subjects. And as I've gotten my lab built, there's less and less pressure for me to bring in funding so I kind of gravitated towards what's my true passion in this space, which is physique enhancement is what I like to say. Again, because not everybody's a bodybuilder. And the thing about physique enhancement is there's very little funds to study this. I mean, it's very, it's just nobody, nobody thinks it's important to make lean people look leaner. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I can admit what I do is on the more vanity side of the profession. I'm not curing cancer. Don't claim to be doing um, that type of important health work. But what, what I do, not many other people are doing. 
And it just, you know, I was created to have this interest and I absolutely love it as you absolutely love it. So I'm, I am fulfilling a need uh, that's, that, that, that is a void in the research space. Yeah, absolutely. And so one question that I have for you, um, based on your research, and people always get caught up in what supplements do I take and when do I take them? Um, and based on the things that you've looked at um, for the community that's going to listen to this podcast, what would you suggest, if anything, uh, that they take supplementation wise as far as things that will help them enhance their physique? Okay, I, I, I'd like to answer this question practically by saying, what do I personally take? So let, let me do that. Because there's research on some supplements that I don't take, and there's other popular supplements that have no research behind them that, that a lot of people take. So on a, I would say a daily basis, or let's just say a near daily basis, but close to every single day, I take three supplements. I take creatine monohydrate. I take a whey protein supplement, sometimes casein on an off day. So let's just say a high quality protein supplement and I take fish oil. Now, again, I, I choose not to take pre-workouts that, are have, that typically have caffeine in them. I think caffeine's a very effective supplement. I get a little caffeine in Diet Dr. Pepper that I drink, but I don't really, I don't take it for any ergogenic or physique purpose. So caffeine would be another one that I think, wow, that, there's so much research behind that. But me personally, creatine, high quality protein, let's just say dairy protein and fish oil. Awesome. Yeah. So those are basically the, the ground covering bases of what I would recommend for anybody as well. Um, one supplement that I would like your opinion on um, is L-carnitine. And we've talked about this metabolic pathway in your class um, and in your course, but this was oral. One of the biggest things right now I see is injectable L-carnitine. And I don't know if you've looked into that at all, but if you have, I would like your opinion on that. And if you think it's more effective or if there's something different about how it's, how it impacts the metabolic pathway there. Yeah, and I've heard the same thing you you have, and I have not looked at this for a couple of years. So I'm I'm going to base my response on when I was up to date on that supplement, probably at least five years ago. I was never overly impressed with the literature on L-carnitine through oral ingestion, but like you just said, what I what I hear from coaches, and these are you know. You know, like yourself, these are some of the, the, the premier coaches in the sport of bodybuilding. What they've told me is it's a lot different when it's injected. So if that's true, I mean, on paper, it looks great. On paper, it, you can just see how it will cause the burning of more fat. It, it, it shuttles more fat into the mitochondria to be burned. But unfortunately, there, I, I'm not aware of any research on injectable carnitine. Um, I, I, it is something that I would like to experiment with myself this year, try to standardize it, inject it in myself just to see, hey, am I noticing anything? So I don't have an informed opinion other than what you just said. Now, is it something that you've experimented with or do, that you've had clients on? Do you have, do you have an opinion? 
So I personally have not used it, but it's something that I'm very curious about. Um, I would like to use myself, obviously, like I always do as a lab rat, um, and experiment with that and see the effect on us because I do hear a lot of, you know, leading coaches saying like injectable L-carnitine is somehow different. Um, and I would like to see again, and I think a lot of our listeners look at research and while I think evidence um, is very important, what I think that some people miss is that anecdote leads the research, like leads the research question um, instead of research leading the application that leads to the anecdote. I think that there's some people that kind of misconstrue that circle. Um, and so like you said, it's, it's based on these uh, anecdotal experiences that coaches have that makes you go, hmm, is this effective and why would it be effective? And then we get research kind of later on. Um, so I think uh, when it comes to practical application in coaching is it's not always, well, I can only do this because the research says this, where I think a lot of coaches get skittish um, is you have to kind of take what you know about physiology, um, look at the anecdotal evidence that you're seeing and tie it together um, to lead to a question. And so that's kind of where L-carnitine on an injectable side um, is, is spikes my curiosity because I'd like to see um, the outcome of that um, in a practical way, especially with physique athletes. If it does, you know, oxidize body fat at a, at a faster rate, um, you know, I'd like to know why. And, and you make another good point. Almost at this point, everything that I do in my lab, it's driven by what people are doing in the field. So if you just look at the last few years, we we're just we're about to publish a flexible dieting study. We we did a diet refeed study, uh, the diet break study that you're going to be a co-author on. We did that. I mean, all of these studies are coming that the ideas are generated from coaches and what they're saying. Hey, this is what we're doing in the trenches. We we're noticing success. And then, as you know, two or three years behind that, because that's how research is, somebody hopefully picks up on this. And again, we're fortunate enough to do some of this type of, of work. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I, and again, I know uh, the misconception, especially on social media, the trendy thing is oh, I'm an evidence-based practitioner. Um, and I think that a lot of people think evidence-based means reading an abstract and then trying to apply it to your coaching um, when in fact it should be your background knowledge um, than things that you see anecdotally because you should be collecting enough information to start to see trends with things that you're seeing um, and then ask the research question and see if there's literature on it um, or lead the way and give advice to people like you who are very interested um, in learning more about that specific community or things uh, that we can apply to optimize physique in general. So um, very, very excited about what you might do with that. And if I do use it, I will gladly uh, share my experience with you. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, again, it's, I think it will be tough to standardize, but hopefully somebody like you who's paid attention to their physique at the level that you have for years, you're gonna notice yes, there's something to this. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's one of the cool things too, is, you know, being able to be part of your lab. I mean, I have research and data on myself since 2018, um, which is awesome to be able to reference and look at and the way that my body composition has changed and things that we've kind of manipulated in, in the research lab um, and how applicable that is to the community niche specific and or a broader community of just athletes and people that are are focused on you know bringing their best physique potential um, and maximizing that yeah and something else i think you'll be interested in because I, I believe you experimented with this is gdas now i don't know if you use the gda but I, I i do remember you doing a lot of blood glucose testing mm -hmm. so we're planning i have a grad student here jacob brokel we're looking at 
likely funding permitting looking doing a study on that in resistance trained people so I don't think there's any research. I think almost all of the research in those areas, if it's not a drug like metformin, even the, the, the primary ingredients like berberine, it's almost always in type two diabetics or diabetic patients. So we're, we're starting to discuss a study design for GDAs. And if we did that, it would probably be this fall. I think that would be phenomenal. Uh, I think that, you know, blood glucose and, and monitoring that is very important, especially you'll start to see. And one thing that I notice in my clients is when their calories get really high, um, there comes a point where even if you don't change anything, their body composition just starts to go and you wonder what it is, right? Training is good. Recovery starts to feel a little bit off, you know, their mood and they're a little bit lethargic and that's where, you know, I'll throw in and make sure they're utilizing that, but also, um, you know, a good calorie drop um, in the middle of an off season, just to kind of resensitize resensitize it um, that typically picks things back up but yeah as far as ingredients one of the most paramount things that i see um, is is berberine yes and right now we're struggling and i'd like your opinion on this we're struggling because we're going to test this in healthy people healthy resistance trained people who already should have really good glucose disposal physiology mm-hmm. should we just look at berberine or should we look at an actual commercially available supplement that kind of attacks the, the lowering of glucose through multiple mechanisms like cinnamon, uh, berberine, what were some of the other ones, uh, vanadyl sulfate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were one or two other primary ingredients that they look at. So I'm thinking that, I don't know if we would notice any effect in, in healthy people. That's my question. Clearly type two diabetes, the research is there with berberine alone. I'm just wondering, do we need to have a multifaceted approach to lowering glucose if we're going to see an effect in healthy people? So I think that you, first, you need to take a baseline of the individual. Um, if they're already very glucose sensitive, I think the, the issue with throwing in a GDA there is it could, it could throw them in a hypo state. Um, and you don't want that to be an effect that's happened to me at one point. Um, and, and so, you know, you want to tread that lightly. Um, but I would suggest, um, looking at populations that have, you know, a, a pretty high calorie intake. So maybe 18 to 20 times their own body weight as a, as a prerequisite for being involved in the study, right? You want them in a slight surplus, even though they're resistance trained um, and they have a point where their calories are a little bit higher than, you know, where you would be at quote unquote maintenance around 14, 16 times their body weight. Um, Once their calories are that high is where you start to kind of see some issues over a prolonged period. And at that time I would take their baseline and then um, you could even run you know, no GDA, you could do just do berberine and then you could do one that's on the market. So you could see, is there a difference between just taking berberine in that impact alone? Is that strong enough? Or is there something to these supplements that have kind of these, these multifaceted uh, blends in them um, and then compare the outcome of that? Um, so I think as long as you're screening the proper way with subjects, and again, most people, especially college, um, are going to be eating, you know, mostly cafeteria food and probably higher calories um, if they're tracking that stuff. Um, and then just pay attention to obviously body weight and starting where they're at. Um, obviously, the, the education that we give in our lab about tracking and making sure that that's all accurate with the people that we have working in the lab, um, that will also be really helpful um, just to make sure that they are being as accurate as possible with reporting, which is another thing that makes our lab stand out um, is the individuals and the education involved when we, when we work with subjects. So when you were monitoring your, your blood glucose, you did not 
take an actual GDA supplement. You were just, you were just, so you were just monitoring. Right. So initially I, I was just monitoring. So, um, and this was in my off season, um, when I was at what I would say my most uncomfortable form, but you always made me feel like it was fine. Um, and then I noticed that it was starting, you know, to elevate in my off season. And I was kind of starting to see shifts in body composition. This is stuff that I had heard anecdotally other coaches speak about. And so I was like, Hmm. Um, so I started taking my blood glucose and I took that for about a week before doing anything, because I was like, it could just be the reading. It could be, you know, you got to make sure you swab it correctly. You don't want the first, you know, droplet of blood for contamination purposes. And so, um, once I got a baseline and it was consistently elevated, um, then I started adding in a GDA and at that okay. point, um, you know, it started to come down. So for me, it was effective at that point. Um, I think that, you know, taking it all year round, especially if you're someone who always can tolerate high carbs might be okay. But again, you want to be paying attention to timing. So for example, if you have your athletes that are resistance trained, I would not have them take a strong GDA post-workout. They're already going to be sensitive. Um, and so that could make their blood sugar drop uh, rapidly, which would make them go hypo, which is again, a very bad feeling. Um, so it's not always applicable, but again, I also think, um, with the subjects that you have training intensity is going to be a variable. You have people that train at a very high intensity that definitely don't need a GDA post-workout. Then you have people that just kind of train and go through the motions and maybe, um, they're not that sensitive because the stimulus wasn't that high of their training session. So again, I think that, um, these are just things that you would obviously put in at the end as like, you know, things you might want to pay attention to takeaways from the research, if you will. Um, as to what might be not apparent or things that you can't exactly monitor. Um, the good thing about the lab is that you have the ability to watch subjects train. So you have that insight. It could have um, people looking over them in the lab, kind of uh, make note of the type of training that this person typically is. Like, are they someone who works at a high intensity? If you're not going to change the variable, um, you know, have them monitored during training, but keep training consistent and then have the people in the lab kind of note um, how intense the train the, the athlete is when it comes to training um, because again that will play a role um, with glucose uptake yeah and i don't know if we'll i don't know if we will do a training aspect that's something else we discussed so clearly we'll do a resting session like does it even just after and we'll do like an oral glucose load i think it's 75 grams of dextrose so we'll do that and then yes is and then if we do decide to do a post-workout that would be the next step yeah, absolutely. So I think that would be, again, a really interesting study, but I do think, um, obviously I would say use court load, <laughs> but, um, if you were going to go with the mix, uh, but I do think it would be interesting to see something that's just like ber berberine versus like berberine chromium and, and the other, uh, aspects that help with shuttling, um, glucose. Yes. Yeah. All right. I was going to ask you, so Core Load was the brand that you use because obviously we'll have to choose a commercially available brand to test. So, yeah, no, for sure, and I, I'm pretty sure that Doug would be all about being involved in the study as well. Um, if we were to shoot him over, you know, the idea of that, I'm sure he would support 100%. He's definitely very in the niche of bodybuilding and and likes to be a part of that stuff. So that's very cool. Nice. So talking about you and your research now. So uh, as far as studies that you have done, um, can you talk about the ones that you've started doing, the ones that I was there um, that you had performed and then upcoming studies that you have and you're in designing outside of the GDA study that we kind of discussed? Do you have ones that are already in the works for this year? What exactly are you looking at? Um, and is there any insight that you can share there as well? Yeah, so 
starting on Monday, so two days from today, we're starting what I'm kind of calling a protein tracking study. So to give that some context, in 2018, we published a study, and this is before you were here that we did this study. We, we published a study in aspiring female physique athletes. So these were resistance trained females, most of whom had either competed in a bikini or figure competition or were planning to do so within the year. And what we, what we reported in that study was that higher protein intakes significantly increased lean body mass as compared to low protein intakes. And just for the numbers, it was 2.5 grams per kg versus 0.9 grams per kg. So a pretty big difference between the high and the low. So that was in resistance trained subjects. In that study, all of the subjects, just like you were used to, they all had their own personalized nutrition coach. They had to, they had to track every gram every day for an eight week period. So uh, your typical macro tracking, flexible dieting type of study. So what we're doing now is we're saying, okay, we understand that tracking your macros is a big lifestyle change. It's a big habit, habit to adopt. Um, and is it possible that you don't have to go to that step initially? So this study, we're taking non-resistance trained females. So that's the one difference. So these would be beginners. And, and in your world, this would be like a new client who hasn't had much experience resistance training. And what we wanna, the, the research question we're asking is, if the only thing you do is increase protein, if that's the only thing you focus on, do you get body composition benefits? So let me explain the three groups. We're gonna have a control group who doesn't change anything about their diet. The only new thing for them is this resistance training program. Then we have a, a typical macro tracking group. So they're gonna do the same workouts and we're telling them track your macros, but the only one we care about is protein. And we want you to get a lot of protein. We want you to get a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kg. Now we're gonna go ahead and have you track carbs and fat, but I don't care how many of them you get. I just, we want you to focus on protein, protein, protein. Then we have this third group. And this is the group that is the, the, the real question that we're trying to answer. This group, we're saying, we don't want you to track anything, but we do want you to naturally increase protein every day. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to say, we're going to choose your five or six highest protein foods that you normally eat anyway. And we just want you to simply double them. So if you normally have two eggs for breakfast, have four eggs. Do you have a glass of milk before bed? have two glasses of milk. Do you have chicken salad? We'll double the amount of chicken. So we're gonna help them just focus on protein and trying to double their protein intake at certain meal points throughout the day. Again, there's no tracking. Now the, at the end of the study, they're gonna track so that we can verify did they actually increase their protein. But this is, the, the nice thing I'd like about this, especially for coaches, if you have a new client, you may not have to invest the time and try to get them to adopt this habit of tracking every macro. What if they could simply just increase protein and get some benefits? If we, if we find this, then this is going to be a viable option and it's going to be like a smaller habit to, to adopt 
than the, I'll just say the, the monotony or the, the highest. And I love tracking my macros. It's not difficult for me, but I understand for a lot of people it is. Yeah. So I think, I think that's number one, going to be an awesome study. I can tell you, um, based on what I've seen with, you know, lifestyle clients that I've worked with, I don't actually have all of them start with tracking. Um, I do have them write down in a food diary, what they have. I think Mm -hmm. the only thing that I would be curious about if you do it that way, um, is ensuring that it's the protein increase, because for example, if they're eating whole eggs in the morning, um, increasing protein, but also really increasing fat with that. Right. Um, same with chicken salad, if you're doing chicken, um, and then it's a lot of mayonnaise and you're doubling that serving, you know, that's the only thing that I would be curious about is what is the actual macro breakdown, but you did say you'll have them track at the end. So are you going to have them track at a baseline initially, um, and then aim to have them double that intake? Um, or like for me, what I do is have them give them a a list of lean protein sources, um, and have them pay attention to getting adequate servings per day, um, of those sources, which ensures that it's a quality kind of leaner side of protein because carbs and fats, when they're not tracking at all, tend to add up quite quickly. Yeah. So our, our coaching will be to help them only increase the protein as much as possible. But in the case of eggs, if that's one of the five or six, let's just say five high protein foods that they take, yes, they're going to double their eggs or we're going to ask them to. But if it is a, like, let's say chicken salad, no, just double the chicken breast that you're putting on that. Got it. Um, and the other thing we're going to do is offer post-workout protein. So they're going to get some protein just through that, um, through that avenue as well. Yeah, no, that's an awesome study. I'm very, uh, very curious to see how that will go. Um, the other question that I had for you, because everyone talks about how much protein, so you know me (laughs) and I like to eat like super physiological levels of protein. Um, and I'm very curious if you will ever design a study to look at, um, if it's that high, like for me, so for example, right now I'm about 125 pounds. Uh, I like to take in anywhere from 170 to 180 grams of protein. That's, that's a lot for my size. Um, I don't know that there's any practical benefit of doing that. Um, however, I do notice, um, that, so for this prep, for example, I'm actually not working with Paul. I'm working with a different coach named Dylan. Um, and he dropped my protein significantly. Um, and I had, you know, requested recently just looking at old data because I have all my old data kind of where we're at as far as calories and macro distribution and and breakdown, um, that I feel like my body composition looks harder with higher protein, even when calories are equated. Um, so that's a question that I would have is if you have people taking, you know, over a gram per pound, um, which is the recommendation at this, at this time, you know, does that do anything, um, body composition wise, does it help them burn more fat because of the the thermic effect and, you know, how energy, uh, inefficient it is to try to store protein? Yeah, I, well, let, let me start with what the research would say. So the research consensus at this time is about 0.75 grams per pound or 1.6 grams per kg. If you're hitting that threshold, which for you would be low, that's the threshold where you're maximizing adaptations to mu- for muscle mass. So if you keep eating higher and higher amounts of protein, you really shouldn't expect to be gaining more muscle. What I've seen with higher protein intakes, well, let me speak to, speak to the literature first. I'm aware of about four different studies when protein levels get higher than 1.6, let's say up to 2.2 grams per kg or a gram per pound or even higher. 
I'm aware of four studies that have shown that body fat is either not increased at all, or it actually gets lower. And so what that's saying is, I think the benefit becomes decreased body fat with higher protein. Now, I, I don't have an, a, a mechanism for how that happens. It shouldn't happen. You're increasing your calories. You should be gaining fat, but it's, I'm not aware of any studies that have shown that in resistance trained people. And the, the caveat is the increase in calories has to be from protein alone. If it comes from fats and carbs, then there's going to be some fat gain. Right. Anecdotally, and you, would, you're, you are one of the people that I think about when I'm going to make this statement, without fail, the females that I know that have the highest protein intakes, they're, they're always lean. When, when they eat the level that you eat and you're very, you I mean, you're naturally very lean. It's, um, I was just in the last week, I've had two different females reach out to me and say, Hey, I'm eating all this protein. Um, you know, and they asked me for my thoughts or, or whatever question they have. And because this is on Instagram, I, I, I say, okay, you're telling me this, you are lean. I say that before I go look at their profile. And then I go look at the profile without, without fail. It's they are lean. I don't know what that is, but there's something about really high protein intakes, at least in females, that causes or that's that's let's just say associated with a a lean physique. It's just what I've it's I've seen it a lot, um, and that's part of the reason that I do some. You know, we did that high protein study before. We there was a significant loss in fat in from baseline in the high protein group. Um, in this study, I won't, I won't be surprised if these novice trainers, if they can actually get to a gram per kg, I'm sorry, 2.2 grams per kg, they're probably, they're definitely going to be increasing their calories. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do not gain fat with that. Now, my last thought on this is I think it's a rare individual that can tolerate that kind, that high protein, the general popular, even the general fitness enthusiasts. They can't, it's very difficult for them to, to even get to 2.2 grams per kg. I don't know what your experience is, but you're, you're, you're a, you're an anomaly. <laughs> I am i I'm unique, I guess, in my own ways. <laughs> Not always good, but definitely true. Um, yeah, no, I, I just find it very interesting. And it's one thing I especially see, um, with my physique athletes, female mostly, um, in their improvement seasons, I find um, that their ability to walk around at a better body composition, but also see um, body composition changes in the form of muscle growth um, with higher protein um, intakes than one would prescribe based on the research. Um, and so I was just curious as to, you know, what insight you might have with any um, as far as, you know, metabolic pathways that would contribute to that. But uh, one thing I've read about too, um, and I'm very curious about, um, is I can't remember if it was Eric Helms, someone was talking about protein, um, having it high and then dropping it. And there's like a, a resensitization uh, effect as far as satiety. Uh, I do think that on some level, maybe it's uh, the digestive enzyme that's helping break that down. But at some point, um, you're still hungry with super high protein intakes and maybe you're more efficient at breaking it down. Um, and so kind of desensitizing it with dropping protein pretty significantly and then adding it back in, you get uh, resensitized to the impact of satiety. So I don't know if you've read that or heard that, uh, but that's something I read recently and was curious about. Yeah, I, I can't say I've heard that, but not all of the research reports that higher protein diets are more satiating. Uh, some, 
there's plenty of studies to suggest that protein is just as satiating as the equal amounts of carbs and fat, but it's never worse. It's either better in terms of making you feel full or it's as good as this, you know, the equivalent of carbs and fat, but I, I have not heard of dropping it. Um, but interestingly in my own life, I've dropped, I was eating a gram per pound for much of last year and the start of this year, I just dropped it to uh, 1.6 or about 0.75 grams per pound, at least for a month or two, um, just because it's, I'm tired of eating high protein. And again, you, that's not even high for you. It's high for me. Yeah. Are you going to bump it back, back up eventually? Do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm contemplating on doing a, um, just experimenting with myself. So again, I, I, I'm not committed to this yet because every time I do this, my, <laughs> my family suffers because I go on sometimes these last a year, my, my personal experiments. But um, I'm thinking what I may do is eat at 1.6 grams, let's say for six weeks and work out four days per week, which is typical. Then for another six weeks, drop it to like, half that, like 0.8 grams per kg, like really low. Do that for six weeks. Did I gain muscle? Did I lose muscle? Did I stay the same? Then, then go back to the normal maintenance of 1.6. And then for a final six weeks, bump it up to some crazy amount, like where you're at, maybe 3.2 grams per kg. So I'll double it that way. Um, Cause I'm just curious. I know what the research says and the research is pretty clear, higher protein intakes are better for muscle mass. And, and again, if they get real high, it's, it's not, not detrimental and sometimes helpful for fat loss. But in my own life, if I don't, what if I don't lose muscle at 0.8? What, what, if, what if I'm not starving? Well, then, then I might have take it easy on myself the rest of my life. Or maybe I'll love 3.2 because I feel I'm never hungry. So that's something that's I'm kind of tinkering in my head. I guess when I look at that though, that's at least a 24 week personal experiment. And I've learned, I have to kind of clear this with the family <laughs> because um, of course this one wouldn't be so bad. This one wouldn't have, um, I've done experiments in the past just that, that are a little bit more um, family intrusive, we'll say. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I would uh, encourage you to get your body composition done also, because I would be very curious to see um, if you keep, you know, training and, and everything else on the same level, um, yeah. if there are indeed body composition changes, just manipulating protein. Yes. Yep. And that's exact. That's, that's, that's what I would do. I would, and I may even, uh, again, if I, I'm pretty cheap, but maybe even get blood work. Um, throughout all those phases, how did that change at all? But clearly, I'll, I mean, if I do nothing, I'll do body composition and I'll probably do metabolic rate as well. Yeah. Very interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. I'm, that's what I'm very curious about. Just like the impact of protein. I know some people are like, it's stupid to have that much, but I'm like, I'm telling you, there's something magical about having it just a little bit higher. Um, again, especially in females, just from what I see, um, it's changed a lot for my athletes. So I, I tend to be biased in that, in that side of it, but um, very curious about that. Do you have any um, studies for the spring? Uh, I mean, the fall that you're designing? Well, the, the, um, 
I think this protein tracking study, it'll be the largest study we've ever done. We're, we're, we're prepared to get 90 subjects, um, 30 subjects per group. So most likely that will go, that will also extend to the fall semester, the fall of 2021. Um, I think we'll do the berberine or GDA study probably next fall. Um, we're also looking at a thermogenic study with um, Legion Athletics. They're going to come out with a new thermogenic supplement. They have a non-caffeinated version and they're about to introduce a caffeinated version. So we're going to test that for them. Um, that one, I think we'll, we'll do that this spring and prob probably into the summer. And then the, the other thing that's kind of on the back burner, what will probably be our next study is a rapid fat loss study. We just, we just completed a rapid fat loss study um, last semester and replicating that, but throwing in a refeed. So a two day refeed with a pretty severe caloric restriction for a week prior and a week after. So I, I think that's about everything that we're, that we're looking at going forward. So the rapid fat loss study that you completed last semester, have you had a chance to look at the data? No, um, we were able to do some preliminary data analysis and we presented some of that research at the ISSN conference. So I'm able to talk about that. Basically what we did was we had subjects, males and females who are resistance trained for a two week period, so 14 days, they reduced their calories by about almost 40%, so 37.5%. And we kept protein at 2.2 grams per kg. And what we were hoping is if we keep protein that high and if they're resistance training, can we be that aggressive and maintain muscle mass and maintain metabolic rate? And the preliminary data with again, we didn't have our, our full data set yet. The answer was no, there was a loss of muscle mass and a loss of metabolic rate, even when we did everything else right. So as you know, this violates one of my principles, you, you don't crash diet. That's the worst thing you can do for muscle mass and metabolic rate. But I, I, I would like to over the years start to investigate, well, how aggressive can we be? What's the most amount of fat we can take off of the human body without causing damage to metabolism or a loss of muscle mass. So I, I see my lab doing a series of studies to kind of hopefully pinpoint, we can be this aggressive. Um, and right, right now I would say that 30, you know, nearly 40%, it's not there, it's, it's too aggressive. Very interesting, because I remember when I did it, we cut it at 50. Um, yep. And I remember my RMR actually went up um, after the first week and we did um, see some insights into, into fat loss, but I, um, as far as body comp, I don't think I was negatively hit, but again, this is a question that I would have is, you know, 2.2, what if you raise it to, you know, twice that for someone um, like I was well, pretty high. I think what I we run into in that case, and we ran into it in this case, some people, their total cal calorie allotment was protein. So let's say they're eating, um, I don't know, 1400 calories. Now we cut them to 900. And depending on their size, 860 of the 900 calories needed to come from protein. So we ran, we did run into that. So that that's one of the, the problems. Now, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that for a short period of time. It's a, what do you call it? A protein, uh, 
protein sparing fast. It's almost like a fasting diet, essentially. But that would be a concern. Um, and again, bodybuilders, you would do that. I think some bodybuilders would do that. The general fitness enthusiast is not going to eat 90% of their calories from protein. At least I, I think they would struggle with that. Very interesting. And I do think, um, I, I guess the practical application of that would have to be considering their baseline of calories in general. Yeah. Um, one thing that stinks with women is we tend to be under eating from the jump and then want to go into fat loss, um, which is definitely not the case. I actually see, again, like increasing protein. I'm very curious about that study, especially if you have women as, as primary subjects and their calories are low um, in the upcoming protein study that you're going to do is just increasing protein, increasing their total calories, you know, how that affects their body composition and their fat loss. Yeah. And then again, we have the variable of now also starting resistance training. So in, th in theory, if they are overeating a little bit, obviously the, the nutrient partitioning hopefully shunts that to lean body mass gains, but we'll see. And this is the first study I've done in a long time where it was non-resistance trained subjects, almost probably for the last five years, we've only dealt with resistance trained subjects, primarily females. Yeah, that's, I don't know. I'm excited about the outcome of that one for sure. Um, as far as, you know, previous studies and application to my audience, um, what would you say over the last few years, would you say is, is your groundbreaking study um, that really gave you insight to practical application to people that are going to be more physique oriented? So the one study I talked about earlier was the high versus low protein. We essentially confirmed what everybody believes. High protein is better for physique enhancement than low protein. The other study that we didn't talk about was a study we published earlier, about almost a year ago, March of 2020, which was our diet refeed study. So we had people diet for seven weeks, males and females, and the one group dieted every day for seven weeks. The other group, we said, we want you to diet a little more strictly Monday through Friday, but on the weekends, increase your calories from carbs. So we call this a diet refeed study. And what we found at the end of seven weeks was they actually retained their dry fat-free mass better. And that's just basically your muscle mass devoid of any water. Because when you're doing these diet studies, you, you have to be careful that some of the changes aren't due to water or glycogen levels, especially when you're manipulating carbs. So we, we, did, we controlled for all of the water inside the muscle cells. And they, had, they were better off with their metabolic rate as well. They did not lose, they didn't lose a significant amount of metabolism while the other group did. So that was probably the most groundbreaking of the, the research that I've done. And that study is freely available. If, um, if you Google my name and JFMK, that's the Journal of Functional Morphology and Kinesiology, that study will, it's there, it's, it's publicly available. Um, when we give all the macros um, of the subjects, you can really, for coaches, you can get a lot of like real helpful information from that study. And as you said earlier, a, an evidence-based coach doesn't just copy what we do in a research study. The research should guide them in terms of their principles. But it's um, the, the way that we publish our studies, we make it very coach-friendly because we put all the data in there that a coach would want to see. Yeah, I think that's 
awesome and groundbreaking um, as far as application, because I do, uh, one thing I very much am against is, is short-term or linear dieting. And I make that, you know, pretty apparent on all my client consultations at this time, because a lot of them want to jump into prep. Uh, but when you look at their dieting history in previous protocols, um, you know, they've, they've lost substantial amounts of muscle mass doing some crazy, you know, linear dieting um, and high cardio. And that's something that um, I don't practice anymore. Um, you know, obviously I don't have planned refeeds or diet breaks. I, I, pay attention to biofeedback um, and incorporate those as needed for the client. Um, but it, they, they look so much better. They don't look as stressed. Um, they're harder on stage and the reverse is, is so much better. Um, the food focus and the psychological aspect is, is almost completely mitigated um, when you are able to do that with a longer prep. So I will no longer prep anybody under 16 weeks. Um, just because it doesn't leave always the amount of time that you need to make sure you're, you're reversing them into the show, building up calories and working in diet breaks along the way. And when you said you don't ha- you you don't do planned diet breaks or planned diet refeeds, I would say you do. It's planned based on their biofeedback. Whatever your system is or whatever you're noticing, there are triggers, right, that you would say, hey, it is based on your feedback. It's now time to consider this. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes. as far as like- we're that's kind of- one week and then you're going to have a diet break. Like I don't do like, Oh, every two weeks we're going to do this. It's kind of like, we're going to push here and do this. And it's, Oh, yeah. our flags are what I'm seeing based on the feedback. We need to incorporate, you know, at least a three or four day diet break here. Um, assess response and then adjust from there. Yeah. I'd love that because it's based on, because otherwise you could do a cookie cutter diet break program for, you know, and just give it to the masses. So I well, really appreciate be- that approach. You would think that wouldn't happen, but it does. There's some, there's some kooky things that happen in coaching. Um, but, uh, you know, we can only keep, you know, doing the right things and, and trying to educate people, which is why I have amazing people like you on here. Um, as far as, you know, takeaways and closing notes, um, where can they find you? You post awesome polls. You always link really good research that's applicable to the community. So um, please plug your social media, um, any any journals that you're recently published in that they can kind of find your work. I'm sure they can just Google you. Um, or if you're on LinkedIn, they might be able to find some of your stuff there. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm only in one place, which is Instagram. Um, I might have a LinkedIn account, but I, I have too many accounts. So I'm just like, ah. Eh. I'll just do Instagram. Uh, so that's at Bill Campbell PhD. And I pretty much put everything that I do on Instagram. So every study that I publish, I, um, if it's open access or even if it's not, you know, I put a link to there. So pretty much everything you can find about me is on my Instagram page professionally. I don't talk about my, my, my family or my (laughs) personal life. Yes, yes. Um, but professionally, it's it's pretty much all there. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Campbell. We're definitely going to have to have you back. So I appreciate your time and we'll chat soon. All right. Thank you.